I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Dr. H. Richard Milner IV is a leading mind in childhood education. Take a look at his resume and you'll quickly learn that claim is not hyperbole. He's the Cornelius Vanderbilt Chair of Education in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Vanderbilt Peabody College of Education and Human Development. He also has appointments in Vanderbilt's Peabody's Department of Leadership, Policy and Organizations, and the Department of Sociology at Vanderbilt's College of Arts and Science. Get this, he's an elected member of the National Academy of Education and he's the president of the largest research organization in the world, the American Educational Research Association. Like I said, he's a leading mind in childhood education. He is the lead author of the 2018 bestseller, These Kids Are Out of Control, Why We Must Reimagine Classroom Management for Equity, where he stresses the importance of classroom management as a foundational pillar of any learning environment. So, how does the social context of the classroom impact students and their teachers? How can we reframe our ideas of discipline and punishment? And how hopeful or worried is he about the future of our education system? He's here to talk with us about it. I'd like to introduce Dr. H. Richard Milner IV to This is Nashville. Rich, thanks for being here today. Khalil, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Pleasure. Pleasure to have you here with us. So, you grew up outside of Atlanta in a small rural county. What was your life like growing up? I had a great life growing up. You know, I grew up in a community that cared about me. I had outstanding, you know, teachers. I had, you know, great friends. And my parents were, you know, to me, you know, the best folk in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you know I, I probably gave them, you know, a hard time from time to time, but they— you know, instilled so much uh, in me. In fact, I think they sacrificed everything for me. They sacrificed everything for you. Absolutely. Tell me a little more about that. Well, I mean, yes, this notion that, you know, we want our children to succeed and to, uh, you know, have the, the best of, of what of the poss of their possibilities, right? So, um, you know, so I don't have a narrative. My narrative is not that I grew up in a, you know, an impoverished community or that, you know, uh, or in a single family home or I mean, my narrative is really around uh, this notion that I had, uh, you know, great uh, mentors. I had people who cared about me. Uh, there were, you know, very high expectations uh, for me, and uh, I, you know, I was a, a pretty good student. Uh, but you know, my I grew up in a household where my sister was, uh, you know, in accelerated classes. She uh, was, uh, you know, considered gifted, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, I in fact. Uh, struggled a bit, you know, my, uh, you know, never diagnosed, but I suspect I, I have some aspects of dyslexia. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, uh, I struggled with reading for many years. Um, but you know, uh, that certainly did not hinder my, you know, my belief or, or, you know, my parents' belief in my capacity to, to reach my goals. I say, so you, you struggled in school a little bit. Did you, did you enjoy going to school? Despite the struggles, I think that's a great question. Uh, you know, some of my, you know, your, your, your colleagues now are talking about this notion of joy, right? Mm -hmm. And what it means to do and be involved in in school. And I think uh, when I was going to school, the you know most of the excitement I found was uh, not as much uh, of in terms of what happened in the classroom as much as it was the the sort of sociology or the socialization of my friendships, mm -hmm. right? So. 
Uh, it wasn't that I was waking up every morning like, yeah, let's go learn, you know, algebra or, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, let's engage in this, these, you know, uh, you know, whatever the, 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 the we were covering in science. But yeah, you're ready really to see was, what's going on in the lunchroom. Right. Well, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. to hang out with my with my folks. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, part of what was so integral. But I will say one thing about I had a high school senior English teacher and her name uh, is Natalie Ford Doby. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and Miss Doby was just the uh, just she just epitomized to me what it mean what it means to teach. Uh, she told me when I was a senior in high school. She said, "Rich," she said, "I read your your manuscripts, your uh, essays last mm. because." They they're just so thoughtful, you know. They're just always, and I suspect she probably told many of us that, right? Yeah. Uh, but to me, Khalil, it was like, oh wow, you know, there's something really uh, special about me and my work, and especially growing up in a household where my, you know, my sister was very, uh, you know, much academically mm-hmm. um, talented. Uh, and so my point in sharing that is, guess what I do now better than anything else? I consider myself a writer. All right. It's it's what brings when I think about joy and I think about what I do and what I uh what I contribute to, you know, the fabric of, of this thing we call life. Mm-hmm. It is really around writing. How how do you use your writing in your work to get across, you know, the ideas that you're conveying? I think that's a really uh, great question. You know, the the idea here, one of the uh, the areas in my work that uh I'm quite a sort of uh most uh known for is this framework around researcher positionality. And uh, and so researcher positionality really is about uh, sort of demystifying or really disrupting, I think is the better word, to use this notion that researchers are these objective beings who are uh, not intricately and deeply connected to and intimately connected to the work uh, in which we're doing. So mm-hmm. the questions we pose, right? The mm-hmm. the conceptual frameworks we use, the the way we engage people are deeply connected to who we are uh, in our work. And so um you know, that that story, my experiences have really impacted me uh and my work. And so I carry you know, Mrs. Doby with me yeah. everywhere I go. Yeah. You know. It seems like a lot of um educators that I know had a teacher that inspired them, that, that mm-hmm. showed them the path, it didn't force them to become a teacher, but they, they it really influenced them to take up that path. And Mrs. Doby did that for you. And, and after after you went to college, you went to an HBCU, which one? South Carolina State University. South Carolina State Bulldogs. University. Okay. <laughs> and after, after that, you majored in English and you earned a master's degree in English education. And you taught high school for a little while. Yes. I want to talk about your rookie year. Sure. As a teacher, you know, where did you teach? So I taught in uh, right outside of Columbia, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a community, you know, I would say 94% of my students were African-American. Uh, they, mo- most of them live below the poverty line. Um, and these were some of the most brilliant, engaging young people I'd ever, uh, you know, come in contact with. The challenge was... Uh, from a resource perspective, uh, they were expected to achieve, to uh, to meet the same expectations as their neighbors, you know, in a neighboring district or in the, they're down the street with, you know, resources uh, both inside and outside of school that far exceeded where these young people 
were. And those that was really, in a lot of ways, Khalil, my uh, my motivation for going back and to earn my my doctorate degree, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because um, on my doctoral degree, I really uh, was curious about you know these young people who brought so much creativity, who showed up in spite of you know difficult circumstances, who uh, were empathetic, who uh, you know could use iambic pentameter and and draw from mm. text both written and uh, orally in ways that uh, anyone, you know, any one of us would, would uh, you know, admire, right? Mm -hmm. And I, but, you know, at the same time, the structures and the systems were not necessarily made or designed for them to succeed. And so I wanted to sort of disrupt this notion that, you know, that, you know, there were outliers, you know, that the only way for one to succeed, you know, you have one or two people who succeed, you know, we look at, you know, Oprah Winfrey and we say, you know, oh, Oprah succeeded. Yeah. Uh, so anyone could, you know, she pulled herself up. But So I really wanted to understand uh, what it takes to, uh, um, to enable structures and systems such that every young person could meet his, her, their capacity. Did you find it hard to relate to your students when you were teaching them? Because as a former educator myself, that's something that I dove into. Mm -hmm. You know, when I first started teaching elementary school, first time 26 years old, uh, the first week of classes, I hear about two things, three things that really I had no idea existed. Pokemon, <laughs> Dragon Ball Z, and Harry Potter. So I went out, I didn't get Harry Potter books. I, was, I already had too much on my plate, but I went out and bought $150 worth of Pokemon cards. Mm. I started, well, what's this Dragon Ball Z thing? To get into their minds so I'd have something to talk with them about aside from schoolwork and, and the responsibilities that they had as students and I had as a teacher, and that really opened up their eyes. And um, that helped us create that relationship. Did you have something similar? Yeah, I, I think that, that educators, and I want to just say teachers are working overtime, they are doing exactly what you did, Khalil, right? They're going above and beyond the call of duty to meet the needs of the young people with whom they're working. And, uh, you know, I talk about uh, Mrs. Doby as, uh, as, a, as a sort of a, a, a case in point, right? But I just want to be clear that, you know, there are many teachers, there are so, there are so many teachers who are, uh, really committed to the students with whom they're working and, uh, you know, make, to make sure that they are succeeding. And so the relationship piece is essential mm -hmm. to what it means to teach. It's not, it's not tangential. It's not marginal to the teaching and learning exchange. It is the centerpiece for what is necessary for, uh, for young people to succeed. And so when we talk about this notion of classroom management, or we talk about this idea of thinking about what it means to, uh, to ensure every uh, you know child learns and succeeds, right? Uh, it really is around how do we think about developing a curriculum that's engaging? How do we think about instructional practices that are essential for young people to connect with, right? And uh, and one of the things my work does, you know, through my research, I've you know I've been doing this work since 1998. You mm -hmm. probably couldn't tell that if you. We're looking at me. I know I look, you know, you know, just, just joking. But I think 
uh, you know, this idea that I've, I've, I've studied successful teachers of young people who uh, are often placed on the margins of, of, of learning, you know, people who uh, society would suggest are not supposed to succeed. And these educators are, are creating and they realize what's necessary for them to meet the needs of, of, and to build, you know, structured systems, uh, environments for them uh, to succeed, right? And so the idea here in, you know, Geneva Gay, one of the, the, the great uh, uh, researchers in this area, Geneva Gay makes it clear that what we should be doing, rather than uh, assuming or rather than expecting young people to make all the shifts mm. in when they come into the school environment, part of what has to happen is we as the as the the schooling environment educators have to make some have have to make shifts change mechanisms right in order for for young people to succeed so i think that's re- a really important point as we think about uh how we uh, advance the work of of uh of effective teaching and learning let's take a short break and we'll get into that in one second i'm looking forward When we come back, we'll learn more about Dr. Richard Milner's work and talk about his call to reimagine how schools approach discipline and punishment and the effects of school resource officers on students. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Lake Colonna, and this is Nashville. I'm here with Dr. Richard Milner, who is a national leader in pedagogy. He is the Cornelius Vanderbilt Chair of Education in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Vanderbilt Peabody College of Education and Human Development, who's written books on classroom management, urban education, poverty in schools, and diversity in education. His work has pushed research forward and led a new approach to education in our country. Dr. Milner, Rich, thank you again for joining us today. Honored to be here. Okay, so let's talk about school resource officers, more commonly referred to as SROs. Last month, we had an episode about SROs. Listeners, you can find that at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, in that episode, we discussed the pros and cons of SROs. We talked with a high school senior, a representative from the National Association of School Resource Officers, a researcher with Education Trust and an educator and school administrator, and also the Davidson County Juvenile Court judge. That conversation had a mix of perspectives, but I really want to get your thoughts on the use of SROs. Sure. Uh, You know, I think uh, SROs are uh, really important in this moment, right? Especially as we think about increases in, um, you know, violence against young people. Um, You know, I'm reminded of the Covenant school shooting Mm -hmm. uh, that happened here um, just a few months ago. Um, And I think... Uh, but I but I also want to caution us uh, and to really think about what the research is telling us, us related to SROs. Uh, I think just as educators who um, need professional development and need to be, uh, you know, uh, equipped with the knowledge, skills, attitudes, dispositions, and so forth um, to to effectively do their jobs, I think SROs also have to 
receive training and uh, insights as an integral part of what it means to um, to support the learning and development of young people um, in schools. And so uh, young people are not, um, you know, adults in smaller bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, they are developmental scientists have made it clear that, you know, their brains develop differently, that uh, they are, you know, not developed differently, but, you know, you know, young people are. Their, their, their brains aren't done baking. Right, right, right. They, yeah. We are, we are, <laughs> we are in a, the, the young people are, uh, are, you know, in a process of, uh, of learning and, uh, and becoming adults, right? And so SROs, you know, can't approach the environment like they're, uh, you know, dealing with adults. I would say that, you know, Fundamentally, and secondly, uh, I think uh, we have to also understand that you know I've I've been doing this research I've been doing this work you know since 1998, and I uh, have conducted research in uh, urban high poverty environments, but I've also spent a good amount of time in suburban highly resourced schools. In fact, uh, I consult consult with one of the wealthiest schools uh, here in the state of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I found is uh, that in urban high poverty environments, SROs are often seen as those adults in the school who protect teachers from students mm. and who protect students from each other. Right? Mm-hmm. And I, I want you to get this point, right? So SROs are often seen as these folks who are there to uh, you know, keep harmony and safety from people within the community. Mm-hmm. SROs in in uh, in you know suburban highly resourced uh, environments are often more often seen as uh, uh, as resource officers who protect those in the school environment from those outside of the school. Uh, That's a yeah. huge shift, right? Yeah. So this notion that you know in these uh, in these suburban spaces or in these spaces with resources, right, uh, with you know. Uh, large numbers of white students with with students who uh, whose families have material resources right uh, these these students walk around and, and, and with a sense of safety right and yeah. because you know these these SROs are there to protect them from those outside mm-hmm. uh, but you know what I found with uh, SROs and some and I'm not saying that this is a uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm not generalizing here, but I am saying in the in through the research I've done, I've noticed that SROs for uh, you know in let's say urban high poverty environments, it, you know, that it takes more of a of a uh, 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 almost like prison like mm. you know uh, yeah. uh, 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 approach yes. where uh, young people are you know fearful of the SRO or they're seen as uh, as the authority. To, yeah. to maintain control. Just so so in urban environments where they're less resourced, SROs are seen more as uh, thrust into more of an enforcement role. Yes. And in suburban, well-resourced environments, they're more there to be supportive. And it's interesting because we had the high school seniors, a young man, student of color, he talks about having positive experiences with his SROs. And I also got a call from a gentleman later on in the week who listened to the episode who was talking about his personal experience with SROs being positive and that being the same case with his wife, who was a elementary school teacher. And, you know, that, that makes me think about the training that you talked about. 
Because yes. um, the young man, um, the, the high school senior, obviously had this person. He said they help him tie his ties. And I think I put that on the individual SROs themselves more so than the system that they're trained in. So, you know, earlier this year, the Tennessee state legislature passed a law that would allow for one SRO in all, all state public schools. What are your thoughts about that law? Absolutely. Uh, so I think what's really important to remember is, uh, you know, I've known, I know, you know, some SROs who, you know, they'll go pick up basketball with young people. You know, they, you know, they, they engage and they become a part of the fabric of the place related to, uh, you know, what it means to create and co-create an environment of, of, uh, of care, of empathy, right? So, you know, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that SROs are not, uh, that all SROs are, are, are seen as, as, you know, the enforcer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that uh, there is a systematic approach that needs to take place in order to help SROs develop the skill set to make the shift from what it means to be a, uh, you know, a, 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 a police officer in the community uh, versus uh, what it means to be a community uh, 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 resource officer in a school, mm-hmm. right? And so that shift is every the expectation of the school has to be let's help you understand human development. Let's help you understand that young people need multiple opportunities to succeed, right? Uh, the research out the research is clear, right? One of the things the research shows is that in some environments, and I can point you to the research, uh, unnecessary ar- arrests happen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, when when you have increased SROs, when uh, and, you know, so these are the kinds of things that I think if we understand human development and we understand that uh, that we should be moving towards restorative rather than punitive. Uh, uh, responses and, and practices, then we have a better shot of young people getting what they need and not being funneled through what's called a school-to-prison pipeline. You know, I want to ask about restorative responses in a second, but what does that say about our education system and how it approaches discipline and or discipline versus punishment for students? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I don't want listeners to get the, uh, to, to, to take the, uh, the, to, to take away from what I'm saying that is that we should not be cultivating discipline, right? Uh, each of us is disciplined. You know, all of us in this room, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, we are disciplined, right? Because, uh, you know, for you to wake up in the morning and get moving and to, to understand that, you know, there are things that you must do and things that, you, you know, to build ethical practices and so forth. So discipline is what we should be uh, pushing and cultivating, right? Mm-hmm. But discipline is not the same as punishment, right? Mm-hmm. I think we conflate the two. So, in fact, we call these disciplinary uh, practices, or we we call them disciplinary. You know, you're getting a disciplinary uh, referral, right? It's not a disciplinary referral; it's a punishment referral. And so, what we find is the punishments are not matching, and they're not uh, actually, in fact, doing what we hope they might do, right? Mm-hmm. So, in other words, I was in a school. Uh, a few months ago and we were talking about they have these proportionally just like an overwhelming number of young people who are being referred to the office by the teacher yeah, uh, and uh, consequently subsequently uh, suspended 
expel in school, in school well, not expel as much, but in school suspension or um, outside of school suspension. Uh, and we can talk about what it means. I mean, I want to get into depth about yeah. what happens when you. When I do. You, when we're going to talk about that later but, on. Okay. Okay. But 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 so and so I asked. So I, when I looked at the data, I asked for the data, and what when and the data showed that the majority of the office referrals were for students who were skipping school, mm. right? And the 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 punishment or what they call the disciplinary uh, reaction to that was suspension. Yeah. So let's think about that, right? They're, they're being people, suspended for not being in school right, when absolutely. they're already not so being in school. That's a that's a reward. That's like, like yeah. I mean, they're saying. So in other words, but we continue doing the same practices over and over again. Mm-hmm. These punishment practices are not working. It's not because Rich Milner says it. It's because the data tell the data are very clear. That the punishment practices are not working. If you're just if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour with Dr. Richard Milner about his work in education and how a new approach can help build deeper understanding between students and teachers. You can tweet us your thoughts at this is Nashville. So, you know, what are some restorative responses to the propensity for teachers and administrators to suspend students either out of school suspension or in school suspension? And I can say. From my career as an educator and just observing my peers and colleagues at the time, sometimes teachers, you have your own life. You know, you come in with your own baggage, your own troubles, your own stresses. You try to put that aside to serve the students. And sometimes you just kind of reach your limit. I don't know if teachers sometimes didn't have enough coffee or what have you. (laughs) They just want to remove that student from the classroom environment so they can move on and teach the kids who aren't disruptive without necessarily fully understanding why the student is being disruptive in the first place. What are restorative responses that teachers can take other than kicking them out of class? Yeah, I think that's a really, really great question. And I just want to just reiterate the point that most of the teachers with whom I'm working have, uh, uh, the, you know, whom I've interviewed are, have great intentions and they are doing excellent work with our young people. So I just want to just underscore that uh, point. Uh, but, you know, in order for, you know, some, so what we see is that some teachers go into their classroom, they shut their door. And you know, great things happen, right? They're they they are, are restorative. They build these you know these tools, mechanisms, and and ethos where uh, where our uh, our young people thrive, right? And where they uh, are are able to succeed. Uh, but you know, a restorative approach then says that uh, the entire school building needs to be committed to saying we're going to repair harm. The baseline of what restorative discipline is, is around harm or is around thinking about how do we get to or how do we address uh, when uh, harm has occurred? And Khalil, sometimes, my friend, uh, the harm is on the, the educator side. Mm-hmm. And that, that it takes a lot to <laughs> to apologize for some, you know, not, you know, not for you're right, right? But for some teachers, like, you know, uh, it's difficult to say, you know, I got that wrong, right? Yeah. Or I did, you know, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning and I, you know, or something happened, you know, something happened in my own life before I showed up in school and I may have taken that, you know, uh, 
and, and been and may not have reacted right in the way that I should have. You know, that modeling then helps young people understand that teachers are actually real people, right? And it actually also models what it means to apologize when when young people have gotten it wrong as well. So that that interchange related to how are we going to you know the the foundational sort of aspect of what of what restoration means is how are we going to get along up in here? Yeah. How do we want to how's it and it's a co-creation, right? How are we going to and so some people will say, some educators will say, well Rich, I have to teach. Right? Yeah. I don't have time for. Let me be clear here. You're not going to teach yeah. if if you know if students are uh, are are not engaged. If they are uh, uh, if there's not a a, a a a level of of mutual respect for uh, the teach for teachers and for classmates and right. Mm-hmm. So this is not less spend the first week of school uh, developing rules and then we're going to get back to you know, teaching the way I, the way I, the way I learned as the teacher, right? Mm -hmm. It is, this is a constant every day. This is how we're going to get along. And what you find is when these restorative practices are in place, when you circle up, when you under, and we, I know you're going to get into more depth around what the nature of, of restorative uh, discipline and, and what my colleague Maisha Wynn says is that we got to put restorative justice back in in this. So it's when you we're going to talk more about that. But what you find is there's more opportunities for young people to learn, mm-hmm. right? So it is not this is tangential to what teaching and learning is. Restorative justice says that this is central to what it means to engage. So uh, young people resist the propensity of adults to control them. Yeah. Nobody wants to be controlled. Like let's let's be clear about it. Like, you know, I have twin daughters, right? Okay. And I learned very quickly, right? <laughs> uh that uh you know, I'm a bigger body than our day, but they resist and they have resisted the mm-hmm. notion that um that I should should control them. The yeah. same thing is true for for young people, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is this this negotiation of of power and for them to understand that we're you know you're, we're on the same team and and all those those pieces. Now you you're calling for you you you're calling for an end to the term achievement gap when referring to struggles in education. Why do you emphasize that term? You know, language is important. Language is central, right? Uh, and when you focus on achievement, what we find is achievement places all, if not most, of the onus on young people, on students, right? So it's about outcomes. But uh, if we focus on opportunity, in my, you know, what I've pushed is that we should be focusing on opportunity gaps. Uh, my colleague Gloria Lassen-Billings says that we should be talking about uh, framing our work around education debt, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the, the work really is around opportunity, Right. And so when we think about opportunity, it doesn't take students and families and communities uh, uh, off the table. Right. But it does say that we are committed to creating uh, environments, context, curriculum, instruction, assessment practices, partnerships in ways that cultivate the kinds of uh, experiences that lead to achievement. Right. Well, I Spent, I, I, I taught at the University of Pittsburgh for five years and I de- de- helped them develop their Center for Urban Education. 
And one of the things that if I didn't, you know, I hope we did, we made great, uh, you know, we did great work there. But one of the things we did in that city is we helped that city change the way they talked about achievement. When mm-hmm. I when I left Pittsburgh after five years, the whole the entire city, Khalil, was talking about achievement. I was, was had started had begun talking about uh, opportunity instead of achievement, and just that shift in thinking about opportunity structure. It, it it changed the way people thought about what was actually happening mm. uh, in uh, in schools and so forth. Well, let's see if maybe we can potentially change the way people are thinking about it in Nashville and Middle Tennessee after we take this short break. When we come back, we'll ask Dr. Milner about classroom management and how parents can become more involved in their child's education. As always, you can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. My guest today is Dr. Richard Milner. He's the chair of the education department at Vanderbilt and a respected leader in the field of education. The author and fellow of countless scholarship endeavors and is a champion of reimagining how discipline is approached in schools and is an advocate for creating opportunities for all students. Dr. Milner, thanks again for being with us. Thank you. Now, we're in talking about restorative practices and restorative justice in schools. You know, how is that done? You were you, before the break. You were telling us about how the city of Pittsburgh, where you were teaching at for a few years, changed their dialogue around achievement and opportunity. How does restorative justice within schools play a role in that? Yeah, I think was was really important is that. Uh, Schools really um, engage their data, right? Mm-hmm. We should be data driven in the decisions we make. And so when you look at your data and you see um, high proportions of young people being, sus- being referred to the office first because it starts in the classroom and suspended, expelled, um, what we know is that when young people are not in the classroom, they're not receiving the kinds of instructional practices that's necessary for them to succeed, right? Um, so, you know, the educational psychologists, you know, they call it time on task, right? So, uh, and you think about the number of hours young people miss when they aren't in the classroom. So I think the fundamental uh, uh, push to uh, building a school community where restoration becomes central is looking at your data. If you believe that what you're doing now is working for the majority or all your students, then, hey, keep doing it, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at your data and you see that the the achievement scores are not where they should be or that, uh, you know, punishment practices are intensified or that young people, then this this is an approach to say, Maybe we need to do some. Maybe we need to do some things differently, right? Mm-hmm. And so it takes a, uh, you know, it takes leaders. I, I've just written a book um, for school leaders, right? And the book is really designed on when, when I think about all the things I've learned from young people, f- 
families, uh, educate you know teachers, count, school school counselors, social workers, uh, you know just just implications for what leaders should and must do, right? And what I found is when leaders decide that this is the kind of place that we want to create and co-create with the uh, uh, with with the students with whom we're working, teachers then will understand that their practices need to change. Referrals start in the classroom. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so I think fundamentally understanding what what restorative justice is, looking at aspects and dimensions of what restorative justice, um, how it's implemented, are essential. But rather than thinking about predecide pre pre um, determined practices, restorative discipline. And restorative justice, I'm sorry, restorative discipline and restorative justice is a mindset shift. Mm. So it is a it's a way of thinking about the young people with whom we're. It's a way of thinking about discipline. It's a way of thinking about punishment, right? Rather than thinking only about uh, if I do X, Y, or Z, then Z is going to happen. We're dealing with human beings. Okay, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that more. And, you know, in your latest book, The Race Card, Leading the Fight for Truth in American Schools, I want to ask about the teachers themselves because you just said that, you know, the referrals start in the classroom. How can, how can people who are currently working as teachers or those who aspire to become one, how can they ask themselves tough questions about their biases? Because one thing that I recognized is... I think, you know, did my students learn everything they possibly could while they were in my classroom? No, definitely not due to the nature of the school of where I was teaching. But did they learn more about themselves? Yes. And I think that was partially because I remember what it's like to be 16. I remember what it's like to be 14 or 13 or 17. Some teachers can't do that anymore. What do teachers need to ask themselves, the tough questions to ask themselves so they can relate to their students more, but they can also process through whatever biases they hold. Yeah, I think the the the, the point you make here is so important. Uh, the reflective work really is around should be tied to and connected to the data, right? So if I can't ask my, if I can't be honest with myself about, you know, when I taught, there were moments when I thought, oh, I missed it. You know, mm-hmm. like, ah, mm-hmm. uh, like, did anything, you know, did, did, you know, did we accomplish anything today, right? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, there were, there were moments, right? So I'm not suggesting that I was the, the ideal, you know, uh, you know, teacher. I, I, I did the very best I could, I, I promise. Uh, but I can say for sure that when you look at your data and your data tell you, will, will, will you know, tell you that you are, let's say, disproportionately assigning you know, or referring boys to the office, right? Or black children to the office or whatever it happens to be. Those are moments for you to really reflect about why, you know, those things are, you know, these are these implicit biases, these implicit moves, right? Uh, what the data show, for instance, is that these are national data. The data show that black and brown students typically are referred to the office for what's known as subjective infractions. Hmm. And white students tend to be referred to the office for what's known as objective infractions. Not because Rich Milner said so. This is what the data show. Explain the difference between subjective infractions and objective. Yes. Yeah, so so black students are often referred to the office for things like uh, he's rude. He's being disrespectful. Uh, 
uh, so you know those are those are subjective, right? Uh, uh, black girls, she's too loud, right? Uh, white students typically are referred to the office for things like uh, she's late, he's late. They're late. They came into, you know, class started at nine. They, you know, I looked at my digital clock is nine ten, right? Yeah. That's some that's some that's an objective infraction. And so when you look at the data, overwhelmingly the uh the office referrals are for subjective uh infractions, right? And so not for not for violence, not for uh, you know, uh uh for infractions that where harm might be, you know, physical harm but because of subjective and objective. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lekalona. We're talking this hour with Dr. Richard Milner about how education can be reimagined to create better connections between students and teachers. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. It's interesting. Where you, you, the data shows that you know a black student, a young black female, will be kicked out of class for being too loud. A white student will be kicked out of class for showing up late. As, as a teacher myself, I wouldn't kick either one out of the classroom for that. And that comes to you know classroom management. Mm-hmm. And something that I did, you know, I taught elementary school for a while in Los Angeles. Then I moved to substitute, and that's where I understood the importance of classroom management. I'm teaching kindergarten on Monday in East LA. Then I'm in Beverly Hills the next day in high school. And I would, and let me know if this practice or this idea was right. I would always start it off by telling them my name, and I'd say to the kids as a substitute, "I could be your best sub or worst sub you ever had." You make the decision. From kindergarten to high school, it was a negotiation. What did you want? Fortunately, none of them ever called my bluff to see the worst sub. And therefore, you know, we got along and we got about 75% of the work done. But when I got back into my own classroom full time, I understood that as a teacher, it's more than just going up there and giving them the lesson. Facts and figures, dates, history and numbers and calculations. You're performing. You are an improv comedian. You are a therapist. You are an actor. You are a director. You are really getting them bought into your system where they can learn. And there's a quote from your book. You say, quote, understanding classroom management in context must be coupled with clear links of issues of justice, equity, inclusion, and diversity, end quote. Talk to me about classroom management and why it is so important for any, any teacher to be successful with their students. Yes. So uh, you like me, uh, I was um, I was actually a substitute teacher as well, right? So I I, I substitute taught long longer than I did anything else, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I started substituting when I was a, a freshman in in college, and and I and, and as an undergrad, and I you know I sub for many many years in my teacher education program uh, when I was undergrad. So I think this this idea of most of us on this on this call, most of us listening here would uh, probably support a framework of equality, right? Uh, you know, this notion that we should treat all people the same, right? Uh, but but I want to to sort of disrupt that a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about this idea of classroom management, it really is about moving to a, a space of equity, right? Um, which means that I'm not going to be able to to treat Khalil and respond to Khalil's experiences or Khalil's behavior in the exact same way as I respond to riches, right? Mm. Uh, because I, I understand a history 
of of you know, of Khalil, right? I understand that uh, that Khalil's capacity to uh, engage increased by thirty yeah. percent, you know, today, uh, and riches increased by fifty percent, right? So this this one size fits fit all approach to how we engage is uh, is deeply problematic, and I think it frames and it shapes a lot of the decisions that that educators make. Uh, you know, there's uh, my, my, my good colleague Tyrone Howard made made you know shared this example with me. You know, he was talking about being at a sporting event and how you know, it was halftime and, he, and he was time, you know folks go to the restroom and and how the women's restroom the lines are you know across you know wrapped around you yeah. know outside all you know all the way down the hall and you know you know the men were going into the restroom out in and out of the restroom quickly right and you know an equality framework would say uh that all of the that you know there should be a, an equal number of restrooms mm-hmm. available right uh, but an equitable framework would say we need more women's rooms. Women's rooms, yeah. right? You know, so so the mm-hmm. so the idea here in a very I mean, I don't know if that's the, the best example to give. My wife is probably gonna get on to me about it. But the point here really is that's what class that's what classroom management has to be. And and yeah. it's a struggle, right, if there's if schools are not following uh, a restorative framework because then the students and so so one of your callers might ask like well what does it mean then rich right when uh, if I if if the students observe my response to you know to a classmate differently then you know students don't have those responses when they understand the, that this is how we do things in here this is you know you have to understand deeply that I'm I'm not going to mistreat you because I care about you I know what you what you have the you know the the ability and the capacity mm-hmm. to do. I want to ask one last question, and we're out of time, unfortunately. But I do want to ask this question of parents. Yes. You know, I'm looking at the so-called culture wars that are happening, parents and schools and school boards. And as an educator, I recognize this. A lot of parents send their kids to school. You handle them for six to seven hours. You come back, and their hands are almost wiped of it. They want to check maybe for school projects and report cards, and that's about it. How much can parents really be involved in their child's education to become partners with the community, the school, and their child to ensure a quality education? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. You know, parents care about their children, right? I just, I don't, I don't use definitive language often, right? I'm a scientist. Uh, I, I really try to qualify and substantiate what I say, Uh but even if if that care looks differently, it looks it, it may not look like Khalil's care, mm-hmm. right? But you know, I have I have never met a parent who doesn't care about his or her or chair their child, right? right? So I just want to put that out there. It may not look like the, your care, but it is it is it is certainly you know I my I have uh, twin daughters, right? And one of them, if uh, you know, if I were to give them both a worksheet with 20 math problems, you know, well, not suggesting that you do that. But if I were to give them a math worksheet, one of them will do 26 math problems, Khalil. Mm-hmm. She'll say, dad, you know, I made up some problems here, you know, all right. The other one is going to do six, right? These are identical twin, mm-hmm. twin girls, right? Uh, and the, the one who does six is going to say, I figured this math thing out, right? <laughs> number five is like number eight. 
number one is like number four, number seven is like number two or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't comply, right? She doesn't comply in the same way as 26 does. 26 is a pleaser, right? Yeah. Uh, and six wants to, you know, engage in a different way. I was in, I know we got to conclu- conclude here, but this is getting to your point around engagement. I was in um, uh, New England doing a talk and I got an email from one of the teachers saying that uh, six was not, <laughs> was upset by how the kickball team was being constructed. Okay. Right? So when I got- That's a big deal. That's a big deal to, to, to a <laughs> yeah. young person, right? So when I got to, when I got home, I uh, went upstairs and six was getting ready for me. And I said, six, you know, I know you were being disrespectful because she said, but dad, they were putting all the best players on the other team. And I said, it doesn't matter. I don't want you, you know, you should not. I didn't want, you don't disrespect your teacher. She said, but dad, you told me if I found something to be unfair, I should speak out about it. Mm. That was one of those moments. Here's the takeaway. Six wants to be educated. 26 is fine with being schooled. Ah. There is a difference between being schooled and being educated. What's my point here? My point here is restorative discipline, restorative justice is about the education of young people. Punishment practices is what we've done throughout the the history, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what we've done and what we know to be the kinds of practices that we should employ. That's about schooling. Dr. Richard Milner is the Cornelius Vanderbilt Chair of Education in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Vanderbilt Peabody College of Education and Human Development. He's also the lead author of the 2018 bestseller, These Kids Are Out of Control, Why We Must Reimagine Classroom Management for Equity. Dr. Milner, Rich, thank you so much. A really an honor and pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced and directed by Magnolia McKay. Laura Boach is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. And special thanks to Laura Fitz. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville, find us on Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>